0: And so I started writing for Idle Thumbs, and it turns out Idle Thumbs really had effectively more or less been founded uh, to scam passes to Ethan and GDC <laughs> as, as press.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran game designer Steve Gaynor. Steve is a co-founder at the Fulbright Company, where he is currently working on the immersive narrative game Tacoma. He is best known for his work on Barshock 2, Minerva's Den, and Gone Home. I feel like we should start this talk confusing people start this cast confusing people of like are you interviewing me or am I interviewing you which, which podcast did they just start um but uh um what I usually start with is uh what's the first game that you remember
0: okay all right is this starting now or are you prepping me no
1: no we're this is going this live. is rolling we're the right. tape is going okay all right I just wanted
0: to make sure this is
1: all down for possible <laughs>
0: All right, so now you got to hear me ask that question. It's a very good podcast already. I'm doing great. Um, gosh, so the first game I remember, um, it's got to be... So I grew up with um, uh, Commodore 64 in my room since before I can remember. So, okay. like, I remember playing the... So when I was, like... Three or whatever. I I was really into wow. Godzilla movies, <laughs> so I remember playing the Godzilla Commodore sixty four game. Okay. Uh, which for for on C sixty four, it was like a it was an isometric game. It wasn't quite top down, but it was like a, a high camera angle isometric. And uh-huh. basically, you chose your monster of choice, and you put your cassette tape in to load the data, oh, wow. and you uh, and then you just smashed the shit out of a city. And there were little green dots that were army men, and you stepped on them,
1: um, and Somehow I missed out on cassette games. Yeah. I'm almost like, I'm in disbelief that that ever worked. <laughs> it's it real. It crazy. It is fucking crazy. Cause it was, just, it's the same
0: cassette you listened to aha <laughs> uh-huh on or whatever, except it had a 64 K. stick it
1: into a tape recorder just to hear it sound like?
0: I don't remember. I, I don't remember doing that. I'm sure that, I'm sure that there is like a telltale sound of trying to play a Commodore 64 program <laughs> on just like a cassette tape player. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember so you would just pick a city and stomp the shit out of it. And so I just remember um that was my first introduction to a bunch of world landmarks. Like I remember okay.
1: like I that's I, I learned about the Eiffel Tower. Exactly. I
0: would see the Eiffel Tower and be like, oh, that's what that was. <laughs> or like when you I know like, that. with San Francisco, mm-hmm. it would be like, Oh, that bridge <laughs> from from Godzilla. Um and I don't know, there was like a there was a Muppets game starring Gonzo, and there was a two-player game called Snarfs, uh, <laughs> where basically, like, I played it with my dad, and the the how
1: old were you at this
0: point? I, yeah, I was probably like three or four years old, oh, the, okay. as far as I remember. And um, the premise of the game was there was a seesaw, and there were t- there were t- there were two creatures. There's a there's a there's a large creature on one end like an alien of some sort like a, there was basically a fat alien and a small alien and they were on the two ends of the thing and one player played as the fat alien and your control would make them jump up in the air and you controlled how high they jumped and that would control how far the small alien shot up so into back. the sky and there were there were stars going past
1: It was like a catapult game.
0: Yeah. So you were trying to shoot the small alien up into the sky so it could catch stars and then when those when you caught stars it turned them into peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. that appeared in the <laughs> middle of the seesaw. Wow! So uh, those are the those are the first three games I, rem- I remember. Wow. There were some <laughs> crazy
1: games back then. Yeah, like, a lot of that stuff almost. I feel like it just exists in the memories of like a few random people yeah. who played them. And like, I have this deep regret.
0: I have this deep fucking regret, which is speaking of first games. One of the games I remember on Commodore sixty four. It was this game that I can't remember the name of it. If you're listening to this podcast, and you know the name of the game <laughs> that I'm describing. Email steve at uh and tell me. Um, it's this game where you played as a little robot, and it was an open world game, and it was a top-down game, and there was, like, fields and bridges and rivers, and you played as this little robot that was going around trying to find all of the pieces of this giant robot that had been, like, broken up and scattered all over the world map. So it was this interesting, like, non-linear open world, like explore and find all the pieces of this robot game was that
1: that something odyssey game i don't know i don't know but there here's was this quintessential game that was in a lot okay. of schools back then which okay it's about a robot basically going through all these little mazes okay to like get parts i mean and i also have the exact same okay. like vague remember of it
0: and I just... so like I-, I remembered it from my youth and then i was in a thrift store in uh-huh. florida where i grew up and my parents still live like maybe five years ago or something and i saw it mm-hmm. on like in the thrift store, and I was like, "Oh my God, it's that gaming?" And I was like, "Wow, I'm not gonna buy that." And
1: now I can't remember what it's called.
0: <laughs> and I'm a deep, I'm a deep fail guy. But uh, anyway, yeah, Commodore 64 games were like formative for me.
1: Well, I'm sure we'll find out within 24 hours. Good of posting. This, Let's
0: do so. this thing. <laughs> uh, email me, tweet at Fulbright, whatever. Show tweet, link me to this game. I've Googled it, and I can't. I don't know the search terms to so yeah, find I, I have
1: a few random games like in my brain that I just. I, even now, like having like, gone back and, like, read stuff about, yeah. like, game history, like, they just, they, the thing I remember just doesn't pop up anywhere, and Yeah, like, it's a game, it had, like, nights, right. like, it's like, yeah, like that's, how do you that's describe it? helpful, yeah. right, like, um, but, like, some of those early games, like, it's such a crazy mem- memory, because when you're a kid, you don't even, you don't know what's possible inside right. of it, so you're probably not good enough to play it, so yeah. it's like, you're like, I only got past the first screen... Who knows what the rest of the game right. like, right? Well,
0: that's what I remember from playing like the original Legend of Zelda and stuff. Mm-hmm. Was like I know at the time that I played that game, I had no conception of there being like a progression structure or anything to it. It was just this game where you just like go around and oh, stuff happened, you know? Like there's this higher level, there's this higher order point of understanding. Like oh, I'm supposed to do this first, and that lets me-, lets me do this next, and then I can finish the game. No, it's like here's a weird world, I guess. There's no way of understanding it. I'll just run around. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh. um, did you... Uh, what did you play most of your games on, though? Like, once you started getting old enough to... Because, you know, when you're three and four, you don't choose what you play. Right, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, well, I went back and forth because... Um, so I had a, a next-door neighbor uh-huh. who was, like, my... He was just like the quintessential like 80s nerd like yeah. he had like literally the Star Wars bedsheets and he mm-hmm. played Dungeons and Dragons and he like yes. listened to Monty Python <laughs> albums and like it was all there um and so he had he was he had an NES he was like 4 years older than me so yeah. he like had an NES before me and you know he was like the older kid that I like spent all my time around so he got a Nintendo and I wanted a Nintendo, and um, I got a subscription to Nintendo Power Magazine. Right. And so, like, I but the thing is, like, throughout my 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 childhood and adolescence, I kind of, like, ping-ponged back and forth, where I started with, like, Commodore 64, yeah. and I was a Nintendo kid for a long time. Mm-hmm. But then my dad got, like, a color monitor for his IBM PC compatible. So, okay. like, I started yeah. playing more PC games, but then I got back into, like super nes and ps1 but then around that time mid 90s i got into like sure. origin games and doom and like got back into pc gaming so it, it kind of depended um i i i yeah it really depended on on kind of the time of my life whether i was like i pretty much just play snes or whether i was really like i pretty much play entire like you know mid to late 90s was so much amazing stuff yep. crusader no remorse and Interstate seventy six and like Civilization two and just all like, it there were there were just times when it's sort of like there's no reason to play something that's not this. But then I remember like when the PS one came out, I played Resident Evil and I was like, what is going on? So um I, was I had there not, a, I
1: mean, throughout this period, was there a type of game that you gravitated towards? Or
0: I um I I mean maybe it's not surprising considering what I've ended up working on, but I really was kind of like. One foot in like point and click adventure games like LucasArts games, okay. and, and actually, that was my bridge back into PC gaming in like the late 80s. Was um, Nintendo Power made a cover story out of the NES port of Maniac Mansion, okay. And so I played Maniac Mansion on NES and I was obsessed with it. Yeah. And my next door neighbor was like, Well, if you like that game so much, my dad has a lot more like that on his computer, sure. and so I started playing like Space Quest and Quest for Glory and like Sierra games, and then went from there into LucasArts Point and Clicks. And so I was I was kind of like 1 foot in point and click adventure story based kind of games and then 1 foot in like FPS games and Deus Ex and System Shock 2 sure. and you know
1: Well before we get to those like how did yeah. you play adventure games back then because like that was pre-internet so Right were you? Did you have a like a hint book, or were you, were you, <laughs> oh, you mean you mean you mean how did I
0: finish adventure? Yeah, or games? <laughs> I
1: mean, maybe you didn't finish them right. Like I, I love Maniac Mansion, but I never finished it. You know, like yeah. eventually I think I didn't figure out how to use the paint thinner on the wall, and right. like that was how far I got in the game. You yep. know, and like
0: uh, I like how... well, so with Maniac Mansion, I have a distinct memory of my parents had. It was back in the day when, when, if you wanted to call a hint line or whatever, you had to, you dial like a 900 number oh, wow. and my right. parents like blocked 900 numbers <laughs> at their house. Um, I think just because they're like, my dad, whatever, was like, we're never going to use these. I'll yeah, just sure. like turn them off, but our next door neighborhood. <laughs> so I definitely called the Nintendo hot hint line about, uh, Maniac Mansion. So that's how I finished Maniac Mansion. Okay. Um, Okay, so I've got I've got a bad I've got a good bad story about finishing adventure games in the early 90s pre-internet was um especially Sierra games were just mm-hmm. like hateful about like letting you get halfway through the game and then being like, "Oh, you You're should have done something in the first screwed. screen." Oh, yeah. um and so back then, yeah, I I wasn't calling hint lines cuz I got in trouble for it, but you could just send them a letter in the mail mm-hmm. uh, and and in like four to six weeks they would send you a response um and so i remember i was playing space quest four which is the time traveling one mm-hmm. and i played through a bunch of it i figured out how to get to a place it got to this a point like i think it's maybe like the end of the second act of the game or whatever and you get back to your time machine and you know you have to get back to the place the time period you started in and I like couldn't figure out how to do it. I was like, "What do I do? I'm stuck. I've tried everything." So I wrote a handwritten letter in fifth grade or whatever to um, to the Sierra Hint address. Um, waited, and they sent me a letter back, and and it was, "Hi, thanks for writing." Um, at that point, you need to put in. The code that takes you back to the original time period, uh, that code is on the dashboard of the time machine when you first get into it in like the first three screens of the game. Um, that code's randomly generated every time you play, so, so I can't tell you what. The- so, so please start the game over. Sorry about that. Uh- <laughs>
1: I waited wow. four to six
0: weeks to learn that Sierra design it's like practices. aggressively
1: bad design. <laughs> it's like it's already bad design, but someone took the time to be like, oh, we got to randomize this because we don't let anyone get it off as easy. It's, like, it is,
0: it is like, wow, it is, how do I put this? Um, it's aggressive. design. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So, um,
1: I mean, I thought a lot of the bad design, I mean, I got a lot of issues with those sure. Sierra games. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. And I thought a lot of that design back then was just, like, they didn't know better, or, like, it's, right. like, it yeah. like, going other ways. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, so, now I'm just going to go into Sierra. So, um, I remember playing Police Quest 2, mm-hmm. I think, and there, there, were just, there were just examples of that. So, it was still a text parser game, yeah. So you, but you were driving your guy around on screen, graphical text parser. I just remember there's this part where you're at a crime scene, and you go in the front door of this house, and, you know, you're typing things like... Uh, whatever, sit, chair, talk, partner, you know, that kind of stuff. And I went inside the, the house, and I could see that there was, like, you know, some evidence on the on the ground or whatever, so I typed, look, ground, and the response the game gives you is, when you're inside, the ground is called the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you listened for it, and you did! Wow. Uh, so so that's what those games were uh, that's amazing. at that point. So um, but the real answer is so I really so <laughs> you know, I, I really loved Salmon Max Hit the Road, I really loved Full Throttle, uh, I really loved the main the, the I mean I loved Maniac Mansion, I loved the Monkey Island games, etc. Um, when I was stuck on Sam and Max or Full Throttle or something in that era, I would go to Barnes and Noble mm-hmm.
1: they have get book. get the hint book off the shelf, look for the, do you, do the remember, solution, and then just put it back yeah, and not yeah, buy yeah. it. Do you remember Quest for Clues?
0: Quest for Clues, no.
1: Okay, there was a, there was a series of books like Quest for Clues one, Quest for Clues two, Quest for yeah. Clues three. Okay. where it was basically like it's hints books for like twenty games. Oh, all wow. stuck together. Okay. in one book. And yeah, like, I remember I got I got a bunch of them. Yeah, and like that was it. Basically, it was like they would
0: do. I know that they would. I remember we have one. So I started kind of like collecting strategy guides at some mm-hmm. point. Just because. So I learned this from. Um. The lead designer of Bioshock 2, Zach McClendon, who I worked with, he like has a big collection of strategy guides, and mm-hmm. it's because he's basically like... It's basically a, a, a de, like a reconstructed design document for the yeah, game. So yeah, if you yeah. want to go back and be like, Oh, what part what level was that thing introduced in that one game, you don't have to go back and play it. You can be yeah. like, Oh, here's a whole map of everything. Yeah. And it's just well, sort I, of cool. I,
1: I love these books because they were also I mean, there was stuff in the, there was stuff in it about games I didn't have and probably yeah. never played, but it would have like maps of all the different levels yep. and, like you just you look at it and you like your imagination would go, like, Oh wow, this looks yeah. really interesting. Look at all this look at this layout, look at these yeah. puzzles and like
0: I remember distinctly was, that aspect of like having a Nintendo power subscription was like, they would have the big fold out maps of like mm. an entire game. Oh, yeah. I don't think I ever played like Castlevania three, but I remember the fold out map of like the whole layout of the entire castle and stuff. Yeah. No, I mean, it's when you don't have access to it or when you want to refer back to it, it's really cool that people have put all that work into basically like exposing that stuff for sure.
1: Yeah. Um, now, yeah. It, I'm Trying to figure out what's the right way to ask this question. But like looking back, like <laughs> if you play a lot of Sierra games in the late eighties, uh, I mean, I played some of them, too, and, like, I think about the fact that there were, like, great games in that period, like, games that, like, still stand up, you know, right. like, Pirates or Populous or SimCity or whatever, you know, like, um, like why were we playing these, like, terribly designed <laughs> games when we could have been playing something that was actually good? I know?
0: mean, I think that part of it is is we were at an age where we didn't know better. You know, like, you you don't know that games can be designed better than that. You have enough time to just jam your head against them. But I also think that, like, despite the fact that... And I think this is part of why LucasArts games were, I think, at the end of the day, kind of, like, empirically better designed than CR was that they were less, uh... Yeah, aggressive about, you know, like... the cut, Some of that stuff. But, like regardless of, like, how good or bad or approachable or or obtuse the actual puzzles were, they were giving you something that you weren't really getting from other games at that time. You know, like, I mean, you could play a really good RPG that has, like, a vibrant world and good writing, and, and that's part of it, but I think there's this, there was this level of, richness and characterization to feeling like you were playing through Mm -hmm. a story and living in a world in a way that was very unique to those kinds of games. And so sometimes you had to really fight through the, the, what you're actually doing some of the time. Um, but you know, I think that especially with Sierra and Lucasarts games, there's also just the aspect of like, there weren't very many funny games and it Mm -hmm. was really refreshing to be like, that's a, that's hilarious. That's a good joke. Okay. I have to like put, Combine the thing with the thing, whatever. But, like, it's nice being able to play this thing that actually has, like, comedic value to it. Um, So, you know, I think take the good with the bad (laughs) at the time. I mean, I think that's part of what the whole, like, the rise of, you know, Telltale Games now is. is sort of like, okay, this is, like, the most condensed, like, version of, like, what we were trying, like, what people were were what they getting out of adventure mm-hmm. games and just sort of like figuring out how to how to formalize that into something you can still play, but that avoids most of the pitfalls of like right. oh, I'm stuck. Oh, you know. Right. All I mean, that, it's telling you
1: you like last shot to the LucasArts game of the '90s like as soon as you could because. Um, they were giving you what you wanted when you were younger, just in a much, yeah. you know, more humane format.
0: So. Yeah, and I, you know, I still I, I go back every once in a while. Um, less so now than I used to, but like I've replayed like Sam and Max and Full Throttle probably like ten plus times each over the years. Because mm-hmm. like once you know the solutions to the puzzles, right. it's satisfying just to be like, okay, I'll go through the emotions of that stuff and like be able to have that experience again. Um, but there is something that like, it is such a weird balance because you also don't want to play an adventure game where you just like have the walkthrough sitting next to you mm-hmm. from the beginning cause it ruins it. Mm-hmm. But also it is really nice to already know all the solutions, just be able to play through. Yeah. It's just a weird, like cognitive thing. I don't know. Yeah. You
1: know? Yeah. I mean, it could be the other thing is like during that, during the eighties, everything else. Like, the game part was so, like, obvious. Like, you know, you play an RPG, like, you you know, you can see it was just, like, this is just some numbers and a system, and, like, that's it, basically. Like, you know, they weren't trying to, like, make you think the game was something different than it was, right? And, like, that's what adventure games were trying to do. Yeah,
0: and, like, text adventures, you know, before them, Mm -hmm. there was just this, there was, there there's you know, there's upsides and downsides to the whole, like, everything's special case there aren't really systems it's really just like if then kind of stuff but like the downside of it is in a lot of cases it's hard to play intentionally the upside is the games are about surprising you and about like oh i tried to do this oh and the game actually like responded to that and did something that like i found really you know funny or unexpected Um, and i think those moments had a lot of value you know
1: Cool. All right, so then you and then you start moving on to shooters and whatnot, essentially. And... Yeah,
0: I mean, I had I had a friend that um, that had like Wolfenstein 3D on his computer, and then Doom came out. And what uh, did, did you
1: remember? Like the first time you saw one of those games, like did it make an impact on you, or
0: like? Let's, so Wolfenstein was interesting, but I still feel like. At that point, like it's it's surprising and cool, but it's still so it's still limited in such a, like it's effective like it's effectively a two D game. You know, there's no real verticality mm-hmm. to it. It feels very um, blocky. So I think that I I thought it was cool, but it wasn't the kind of thing where I was like, oh my god, this is changing my life. But when I played Doom, it was certainly a very different kind of experience. And weirdly, the biggest jump for me was when I played. Duke Nukem 3D and I think a lot of that was like the tech and the fact that there was like spaces over spaces And I think it was a lot of just like the useless interactivity just like Mm -hmm. it takes place in a recognizable world you can flush the toilets and see yourself in the mirror and like blah 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 and I think that that stuff I think that was so Duke Nukem 3D was the first game that i made my own like first person levels for because they shipped the editor like on the disc with it right. um i think that they're like i mean i don't think that duke nukem 3d is like the better game but i think for me the robustness of how it allowed you to like kind of inhabit that stupid world <laughs> uh like spoke to me on on a different level
1: how did you start messing around with the editor like like you saw, saw that it was there or yeah i
0: mean so i had a friend in middle school when that game came out and um i remember he downloaded so this was like you know it was like whatever this was like early you know like dial-up um but i remember he downloaded the the duke nukem 3d demo and he Copied it onto fourteen floppy disks for me and brought them to school, wow. <laughs> and, and and I like put them in and copied them over, and then you had to combine them, and I and and so you know like from that point I was like okay I got to buy this game when it comes out blah blah and I and I bought it at, on CD and it you know had a mouse pad <laughs> in the box <laughs> etc. Um, but I I saw that the level editor was on the CD like it, it said on the box you know whatever I had been interested in in, like, Doom editing and stuff, but mm-hmm. that was, like, the thing where you either had to download or, like... I remember being in, like, Babbage's or software, et etc., or whatever, and they would have, like, books that were, like, how to make Doom levels, and they would have a CD uh-huh. in it with, uh-huh. like, the editor on it and, like, example levels and stuff, and I just never went in for it. But when I bought Duke 3D and it just had the... It had both the editor and it had, like, documentation, like, on oh, the that, disc yeah. as text files. Um, I had, like... I had made I had made tracks for Excite Bike on any like there were a few places just where I'd be like, oh I'm gonna that. make my own level because they let you do that. And so I was like, I like this game a lot. I'd like to try to make my own stuff. And I think it just seemed accessible enough that it was like, okay, it's on the disc. You can use all the stuff that's in the game. Yep. There's actual documentation that says do this and this and this. And
1: Was it hard for you to learn or did you
0: I, I mean I think that it was I don't think it was easy, but I don't think that I, well, I was going to say, I don't think I did stuff that was that hard, but actually I, I, now that I think back to it, so I only made one level for Duke 3D, but it was epic. It was, it was like a, it was like a, thir- so it was, I, I got out of my system early. You, <laughs> you wake up in a prison cell and you have to break out. Yeah. Tell me if you've heard this one right. before, but I was 13, so it's fine. Yeah. Um. And you had to like. Break event and then climb through it and come out the other side and then but it was like it was such a it was a weird so you started out in a prison cell and you came out and then there was this like ring this is actually an okay setup, so there was this ring of other prison cells, and there were enemies inside all of them and then to get out, you had to flip the switch that opened the exit but it also opened oh, all the other out. cells, so they mm-hmm. came out blah 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 but then past that point, <laughs> there was a Minimum security section and a maximum security section. And it was like a branching thing where it's like you have to go to maximum security first. And so you go down to this thing and it was a gigantic cavern with like lava at the bottom. And all okay. the cells were like caves in the wall and you had to like jetpack over to them.
1: It was like maximum security.
0: Yeah, I know. Like you, That's where the, the really dangerous guys go. You put them in a cave in the wall <laughs> over lava. Uh, so you had to go in there and jetpack around and do stuff, whatever. So you did that whole thing and there was like... It was, like, a big cavern, and then there was, like, uh, basically a a path of stalactites, uh that kind of made a path So you had to, like, jetpack across mm-hmm. and get more fuel and stuff. And then you got the key, and you came back, and then you go into minimum security, and it was, like, a hotel, and I made hotel rooms <laughs> that had, like, interactive TVs in the rooms. Like, you know, you could, like, turn on and off mm-hmm. or whatever. And this was the point at which I learned about source control and versioning oh, because man. I was like, okay, there's like thing is the hotel rooms. They have like swinging doors. It's cool. There's a fountain in the middle of like the lobby. And I'm, what I'm going to do, I'm going to make like a little like tram that goes around. Like, and so like, I got it working like, you know, little BSP tram that went around on a mm-hmm. track. and I did something and saved it and went to launch it and it wouldn't launch. And the level yeah. would never open again. And I was, and I'd just been saving over the same level file. Forever. forever. And I was yeah. like, well,
1: you, you exceeded the, like the limit or whatever. I did, I did something yeah. bad. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and
0: yeah, that, that it's like save in more than one slot. <laughs> you find out at that point. Um, but no, I, I, mean, I, I pushed it pretty far. I was like, I want to put this thing in. And the cool thing was, yeah, they provided the tools and the docs to like, be like, here's how you make a moving brush. Here's how you make a light that turns off and on. Yeah. Holy shit. I just remember that. Yeah. I'm like so in Duke 3D you could have like different light states right Mm -hmm. I just remembered that I had like the hotel room doors they would have like swinging doors I made it so when you would open a door I switched the light state so that like light would be like spilling out into the hallway Mm -hmm. but it's but it's just you cut the brush and then made the brightness on the brush different (laughs) anyway whatever so um (laughs) Yeah, and then I, I didn't really do much more level editing for a long time. Um, I messed with the Quake 1 editor a little bit, but I just like dabbled until I was at the end of college. And then I was like, I want to get back into that more seriously, basically. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Off and on. I was I was playing stuff a whole lot more than actually trying to make stuff for a long time. Right. Yeah.
1: Do you, do you program at all? No,
0: sure. I mean, I've done a lot of level scripting, but right. I don't... Not any actual programming programming, yeah.
1: So you're not trying to teach yourself to program at this point?
0: No, I mean, I made some, like, text adventures in basic, like, you know, like, there was sure. just little stuff, but I, I, I think I actually, I went in and edited some, uh, some files in, like, Civ 2 and stuff, like, okay. but it was really just kind of, like, poking at stuff. Changes the numbers. And- yeah, you know. I, you're, you're like a programmer, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. right. Um.
1: But yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Really, I didn't really learn program for real until I got to college. Right. Before then, I was just like basic and HyperCard and right. That, you know, random filling around. Yeah.
0: No. I've.
1: I've. I mean, some people. It's. It's. Some people. I'm like, like. I'm a programmer. I went to. You know. I went to college. Become a programmer and like. So I'm like. I'm totally fine with that. But then I. I there's a lot of people I like meet who are like, yeah, when I was ten, I was like teaching myself assembly language. And I was like, Right. Like, what <laughs> like, I, yeah. like, I was not at that level when right. I was a kid. Like, I just it's still hard for me to imagine. Yeah.
0: No, I mean our our programmer at Fulbright right now is talking to him about that, and I think he's way more on that level where he's like I begged my parents for a computer, and I like taught myself to program when I was probably in like you know fourth grade or something. I'm like, dude, uh, <laughs> you know, like I mean, sh- like that's yeah, that's like, how it goes, you know. You start yeah. young and you're good. Yeah, I interviewed
1: but... uh, I I've interviewed Brian Reynolds for for this podcast, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, I imagine like we're so, the two of us are somewhat similar as you know, we both worked on Civ and we're both sure. like programmers designers. And then he was talking about yeah, grew, you know, growing up, yeah, I taught myself, you know, I taught myself to program, and yeah, when I was in high school, well, I was I was writing. I was writing programs for the Department of Defense basically <laughs> to like create like uh, you know simulations of like you know nuclear scenarios like for some general was, <laughs> was like okay, all right like, that's, fine I, just dude. Was, I was not there you yeah know? all right
0: <laughs> yeah No, i mean i've 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 built a lot of levels, I've scripted a lot of stuff, but i never i'm not i like i'm I'm not even an especially like technical designer in terms of like scripting complex stuff like mm-hmm. our our like more more senior level designer at fulbright right now tyne tyne and wales we work together at 2k Marin. and like he he like in tacoma right now he scripted a fully like he basically scripted like a zero g ai to path around dynamically and you can like mm-hmm. pick it up and throw it around and it re gets on its path and all of a sudden like all right, like, like our our programmer Leon tells him, he's like, "Well, you're a programmer." He's like, "No, I just scripted that." He's like, "You programmed that with <laughs> scripting." I'm like, "Yeah, you kind of did." Yeah. So like, I'm I've done a lot of you know like more bespoke stuff, um, but I think that I mean on some level I think I just like get. By the time you're like scripting a system, you mm-hmm. shouldn't really be scripting it anymore. So I think that I tend to like back off of stuff before yeah. it gets real robust. I, I mean,
1: you, I mean, there's lots of debates about like what scripting is for, but like what I always think of scripting is being most useful for is it's it's for code that people can write that if something goes wrong, you can just throw it away and the game will still be fine. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, that's that, because it gives you know it, it's like okay, you know, designer, here's a little sandbox. You can do something, you know, you do some stuff with it. You're, you're like, you're at the end of the food chain at yep. that point, right? And, yeah. like, and you can actually do some really cool stuff when you're at that point. Oh, yeah. But, like, it has to be clear, like, where the lines are, right? And yeah.
0: Like, well, because at some point, like, at some point you are just scripting a very breakable system. You know, like, the, the, the advantage of doing stuff, like, in code is it can be very robust and, like, reactive and actually recover smoothly and account for a lot of stuff and generally scripting is much more brittle and so like scripting is much better for just like okay this happens make sure nothing else has happened yeah go through the whole thing you're done and at the point where you're like oh we have to account for all these variables and what if the player does this and that and it's just like well probably at one of those points your scripting is just going to stop working
1: is the answer like
0: it's it's yeah. really hard to avoid when you get to a certain point of complexity no matter how good you are at like maintaining that stuff i think yeah but Cool. Yeah.
1: All right. So you were in high school yeah. you were doing some level editing. Yeah. Um, did um, there, you know, you knew there were game companies out there at this point, right? Yeah. Is it something you thought about for like a career?
0: Well, when I was in, when I was in like middle school and high school and early college, I was doing um, a lot of comics and illustration. So I was more in like art Track. Yeah. Um, and, you know, narrative art, like writing comics and then drawing them and, and that kind of stuff. And I did a lot of, like, character illustration and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I ended up getting my degree in college in sculpture with an art history minor. Okay. Where, um, where did you go to school? I finished at Portland State University. Okay. Um, but I went to a couple of other schools before that because I was, like, moving around did the Did you grow up
1: in Oregon or Washington? Or
0: No. I um, I was born in Missouri and I grew up in Florida. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, um, been,
1: you've been all over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I,
0: I I lived in Missouri until I was nine, I think, and then I lived in Florida till I was nineteen, and then moved to Oregon from there.
1: Wow! Um, How did you choose Oregon? Uh,
0: my now wife lived there. We we met when we were well. We started talking online when we were fifteen. Uh, wow! And then we met <laughs> in person when we were seventeen, and yeah, we've been together ever since. Well, wow. we were. In, I mean, That's... we were in a long distance relationship for like two years, and then I moved out there. But yeah.
1: When did you? So what year would that be? When you, I mean, this is to me like it's now. I'm, like I'm triangulating like the years of the internet. Would it yeah. been, like '95 or '97
0: uh, was 96. when we started talking. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, we were talking, did, at, like, were talking. on IRC, you, getting
1: that internet relay chat, y'all. Was there getting a, those PMs? <laughs> it, it can't have just been like a random chat room. Was it like, no? Ded, well, dedicated to something specific like music or oh, you're, or something? this is or this or can't is this go on the podcast. No, I mean, um, no, no. So
0: my we both had mutual friends like in real life that both were online and they started talking to each other. So like I had my best friend in high school and she had her best friend in high school and each of them separately. I don't even know how so they happened. got on They were like, I think it's just like my friend anyway. I think like his parents like were kind of wealthy and they had like, you know, they bought him a computer and they had online, they you know were online early and all that stuff. So, I assume he just somehow heard about IRC and was like, Oh, I'll download that. You can chat with people online. Yeah. Um, and so I remember one day I was in a science class in 10th grade and he came in with, I had just like my family had just more recently just gotten like AOL and um, he came in with a floppy disk. There's a lot, there's a lot of origin stories that are starting with someone bringing me a floppy disk. <laughs> so,
1: people, it all starts, uh, so Every <laughs> chapter begins.
0: Yeah. So he brought me this floppy disk and he handed it to me. He was like, Install this on your computer and then we can talk to each other online. And I was like, Why would we do why can't I just call you or whatever? He's like, Shut up, just (laughs) install the thing. So, uh, so yeah, I started talking on IRC. And so like he started he had gone into the same chat room as my now wife's best friend was in. Uh And they both, you know, it was like a similar thing. We were their friends, and they were like, Come into this chat room with us. So then like we went in there and we were all chatting as a group, and then I started talking to my wife, my now wife, and we, yeah, we're just like we were talking for like a, a year and a half, um, you know, just just over the over the internet and on the phone and stuff. And then um, after my junior year of college, no, junior year of high school, I went to and art college summer thing you know there's like sometimes it'll be like here's a summer program for high mm-hmm. schoolers yep. so it was i was living in florida but i got into this um art college summer program thing uh at a school in california and i'd never been to the west coast before uh-huh. and so i was like hey i'm gonna go to this thing for a month and i'm gonna be on on your side of the country and i don't know i'm gonna be back there could i come up and visit you yep. you know and so then the first time i ever met her i stayed at her parents house for a week <laughs> so <laughs> But it was like a classic high school thing where yeah, like yeah. her mom called my mom, you know, and they talked about it and they're like, ah, it's you know, everybody, strange. yeah, What's going on? I don't yeah. know. But, uh, but yeah, so then we started a long distance thing and, and yeah, I, I did, I did my first I did my freshman year of college at University of Florida and then I was like, what the really? fuck am I doing? I'm like, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, and yeah, moved to, moved to Oregon and yeah, we took it from there, but, um, Oh wow, that's
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, and I mean, you know, there's like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff that, um, gone home is certainly draws from our high school experience on some, just me just remembering, you know, being, being in, in an intense relationship as a teenager. And like, I, I do feel like, you know, I kind of like not, you know, it's not like I didn't tell my parents or something, but I did kind of like take off and run away to Oregon to be with her, you know? And th- There's all of this, this yeah, stuff yeah, that sure. I that I kind of um, certainly drew from. Um, and so, you know... Uh,
1: were they okay with you leaving Florida? And like- they, I think they were worried,
0: but they were never like, you can't, you know, like, no, don't... I mean, I don't, I don't think they really... Uh, my, my parents are supportive people, and I don't think that they ever were like you shouldn't do that or don't do that but i do think that they were kind of like could, you know they You're were watching. just worried like was it going to is yeah, it yeah. is this going to go well you know like um i don't think that they were i don't think that they they thought that i was like in trouble or something but i i think they were certainly worried about like is this a good decision you know right um but it's turned out okay so <laughs> yeah wow. Yeah. Um, so where, where, to where to did that Portland, question start? Oh, right. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, yeah. 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 That was
1: a strange. That, but... That's how I ended up there. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, but so you, you were sculpting. That well,
0: one? no. So I. Um, let's see. So I I was doing comics and illustration and stuff, uh-huh. and I I did I, I did some comics and finished them, and um, somewhere in there, <clears throat> basically I was keeping a notebook. What of, type
1: of what type of comics would you write? Like, um contemporary life or were they like no there was like comics, i or? mean
0: it was it was when i was a teenager so one of them was like about like a cool assassin oh, okay. and like <laughs> one of them was about my friend um Robbie, his um he was cuban-american i mean was he still is <laughs> uh he's still alive um but uh he told me stories about like his dad growing up in miami And I did a comic that was about a story he had told me. But, like, it was just, like, stuff. I don't know. And and I wasn't unhappy with it or anything. But there was some point where where kind of, like... There was a point where it converged that, A, I could tell that I was never... I didn't feel... Like, either I was just plateaued at that moment. Or I was never really going to be, like, a great illustrator. Mm -hmm. And doing the work and being deeply passionate about, like, making comics or whatever, like, I could tell that it it wasn't clicking. You know, I wasn't like, oh, yeah, this is, this is the track that I'm going to be on. Right. You know, like, I could tell, like, wait, this isn't really, like, what I was made enough, for. Right, like, well, because I was, you know, I was in college, and so I was really getting into, like, you know, like, alternative comics, like fanagraphics comics, you know, and I was like, okay, artists like Chris Ware and Dan Klaus and, I don't know, these, like great comics artists they are like deeply obsessed with the entire history of comics yeah. and what comics can do and it's like and and i i didn't have that i just liked to draw and wanted to tell stories basically um but at that same time i i was you know keeping a notebook of like what were supposed to be like story ideas for comics or whatever and they were just all turning into game ideas and mm-hmm. like ideas for like game mechanics like oh a game where you could do this or whatever so it was around that time that I was sort of like I recognize that you know I just had the realization that like I'm making comics, but the medium that I'm the most obsessed with and have had the most connection with and I spend the most time with in my own time voluntarily like throughout my life is games. And I okay, I've I've done some stuff with games, and like I think what I want to actually do is if I'm going if I want to try to make a life where I I get by by doing something creative, it seems that what myself is trying to tell me is that like, actually games are the thing that I feel like have this potential for me to like do something good in, you know? And so like at that point, that was the point where I was like, well, how do you actually, how do how do you make that your job? You know, like, how do you get to that? And, and so I started, you know, looking some stuff up and got the idea that, okay, if what I care about is like what happens in the game and the design side of the game, you can get in by like being a level designer and being like, I can make levels, I can design levels, I can prove that I have a sensibility that would mean that it would be like worthwhile for me to potentially be involved in like decisions, you know, higher up in like the structure of the game and what happens in it, etc. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, I should I should pick a level editor back up and like try to like make a go of it, you know. But it was it was one of those. It was one of those things where it was like, this is what I've been doing ever since I can remember. This is the direction I think I'm going in. And I kind of had to have that moment of like, wait, but I think that other thing that I've just been doing for fun all this time is what I actually care about. So like, right. how do I make that the thing that I'm involved with? Um, and were so. you still
1: in college at that point?
0: Yeah, that was like my last year-ish of college. So that's why I ended up getting a sculpture degree because I was like, okay, I'm most of the way to a, to a, a B.A., and I know that I don't want to like push through to like get like a degree in like painting or illustration. Like it's not really where I want to end up. So I was like, well, if I'm, if I need to pick an, a concentration and I know that the thing I'm, that this degree is not going to be directly applicable to what I do after college. And I've worked with like drawing and painting and 2D stuff since forever. I should probably, I want to take the opportunity to say like, I'm at school. I can use this time to learn about working in three dimensions and learn about working in three. Were there digital
1: art programs at all there?
0: Um, there were probably... Yeah, I, I actually... I took... I took at least one class in, like, 3D modeling, like, mm-hmm. and they taught you, like, 3D Studio Max or something like that, or, like, right. Cinema 4D or something. Um, but it was, it was, like, a... There was not a dedicated, like... Digital animation or game course or anything. So I was, I was definitely doing like physical materials and, um, and, you know, learning to work in 3D space, uh, in, in, you know, a tangible way. And it was cool because, yeah, I never, I didn't want to get into like being a sculptor, mm. but I was like, I want to, to, you know, when you're in college, you have access to, Um, professors that can you know give you guidance and more importantly than that I think is you have like your peer group that you go to critiques with and all that kind of stuff and so just having that opportunity to be like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna actually like find out about working in a in a way that I never have before it seemed like if I was going to finish it out that was more valuable than just kind of like focusing down further on something I knew I wasn't actually going to try to like you know uh, run with after the sure. after the program was over you know i think the more i mean i'm i value the the sculpture degree that i got and i lucked into the 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 professor for my concentration um was a, a an artist uh named Harold Fletcher and he was uh it was his first year teaching at portland state and he was like a conceptual artist mm-hmm. um and was way more into like performance and social practice which is like kind of like public it's performance involving the public so he was like he was like a much more avant-garde artist so he had like i was taking you know some classes in like i don't know like uh, metal casting or Mm -hmm. you know etc but the concentration classes were like he had a very broad interpretation of like basically like doing works in In three dimensions, you know, it involves like all sorts of stuff. Right. And so he had a very, very open and kind of like inclusive conception of what it was worth understanding, you know? So, so like you could get a sculpture degree that could be very traditional, you know, and be like, we're going to do work with this material and, you know, et cetera. But like, I just lucked into the professor being like, it was almost more of a, an education in like contemporary art practice and just kind of all sorts of things that people were doing that weren't drawing or painting or traditional art. Um, But along with that, I really value my art history minor because like just having a structured like tour through the history of Western art and especially up into like the 20th century of, of, just like what's been done in architecture and fine art and contemporary and popular art and seeing that progression of like just stuff that's really good to be aware of and be able to draw from. And, you know, when you are a level designer, be able to think like, Oh, okay. I can like draw from the symmetry of like classical Greek architecture versus, you know, or like I can have the vocabulary of, you know, uh, the the construction of a cathedral and the mm-hmm. the kind of like meaning behind a lot of these like forms that we have internalized as a culture. We don't really know why. And you right. can be like, Oh, okay. I can having all that kind of stuff to draw from and understand where it came from uh, has been a really good base to work from when you're trying to make creative stuff. So anyway, yeah, I, I, I got my, my college degree in stuff that isn't like practically applicable in like a specific way, like yeah, we weren't learning X Y Z software, right. um, but it has been a really good set of um, of of fundamentals to to kind of base a creative practice on. So,
1: do yeah. people ask you like they want to get into games? They're like a teenager. They're like, should I go to a game design program? Should I go to college? Like,
0: yeah, I mean, I I I. It's a really hard thing to ask, you know, like, or it's a really hard thing to answer. It's it's easy to, to ask, but it's hard to answer. Like, because so much of it comes down to the individual, you know, like, I think that, and also I, I don't feel like I'm qualified at this point to really speak to, like, what's going on in a lot of especially, like, game Development programs yeah. because it like, must be
1: changing so fast, right?
0: Like, and uh, I mean, there were yeah. hardly any, like, there was DigiPen and you know, um, a couple of other uh programs when I was in college. But, like, I think that how do I put this? I don't know. I, I think that there's this level of if you're going to like a four year college and getting a degree, I think that at the very least, it's valuable not to not to treat it like a trade school. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that if you go to a college and you spend a lot of your time learning a software package or learning, you know, best practices with XYZ specific art pipeline or something like that stuff, you can learn from tutorials online or you can learn on the job, you know, but like there's a lot of stuff that when you are in, a classroom setting with an expert and your peers and like a concentrated place to learn about some higher concepts than that. Like I think wherever you are, I think the most valuable thing is taking advantage of like the stuff that you can only have as an experience in that kind of environment, you know, like,
1: yeah, it's hard to get that general experience, you know, general learning experience. Afterwards, right? You can always teach yourself a tool. Right. right? Yeah. And I think that because there's a
0: lot of, you know, because if someone is in a game design program, I'm like, well, the opportunity you have there is to like work with other people in your program to like learn how to work well together and make something that's like finished that you can be like, we made that together and we can show it to people. You know, like some of that will involve learning how to use XYZ piece of software. But like, yeah, you can make yourself a better Maya modeler anytime but like when you're in the school and you have these other students around you that you can like actually learn from each other and like have that that potential experience of like building something and then being able to work off of that you know so so i think that wherever you are it's just sort of like follow the aspects of the educational experience that that yeah you can't have on your own time you know afterwards whatever that is whatever programming you know
1: yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm sure I would be thinking about that a lot if I was like, you know, at that age now. Like, it seems like it'd be really hard because, um, you know, working video games like was not a clear career path. Yeah, when I was in high school, right? Obviously, is now, and I think I would have been. Like, uh, well, I thinking, think like, I think that's it's exactly what I want to do. That's
0: the thing, though. I think it's a. Th- I think it's theoretically a clear path now. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of things that you can do that seem like they should take you to the end point of and now I make games and I think that even then that's not necessarily you know cut and dried right like you can do all the right the things in the right order um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna end up there I think that there I think that now there are a lot more ways to be making games like you know It it was it was extremely rare, whatever, 20 years ago to be like, I'm just literally going to make my own games, you Mm -hmm. know, and have them be a success. It was more about like, I have to get hired by somebody. Right. And that's at least not entirely true. Now, there's so many more scales at which to make a game and so many tools that are more accessible and and blah, blah, blah. Um, But I think it's still like there's so many, so many difficult to control factors to like whether even if you do X, Y, Z, that seems like it should work, whether you're going to end up in the place that you expect to, you know? Yeah.
1: I mean, it's like, for me, like I only, and this is, you know, this is totally not feasible for anyone, right? Like I, I only became a good strategy game designer because I was able to work on like a strategy game that a lot of people played and make a lot of mistakes and be able to correct them. Yeah. Like like that's not a that's not a path. Right. right? You can like, right. like all you gotta do is get hired to work on Civ Six and right? Like, you know, <laughs> no big deal, you know? Like yeah. call um, up Sid. <laughs> like, I, okay. Um yeah. no, I mean so
0: much of it is circumstance and so much of it is like one person does all same seem- things that seem like they should work and then they don't get where they want to and somebody else just like does a weird thing yeah, and it's it, so hard because like, I mean,
1: it, it's totally viable that like someone is in college or is in high school or just decides to skip college. They, they can totally make a game and do something brilliant and it's going to work. But like, if someone is, you know, telling me like, look, this is what I want to do with my life period. I like, I feel like that they should really like learn a skill that's going to get yourself hired and, because if you instead try to do the, like, I'm just going to do something on my own, like, you know, 99% of those people, it's just, it's not going to, something's not going to come out of right. it. And, like, it seems like it's pretty likely a lot of those people are just going to wash out. And yeah. And they're just going to be like, well, I guess games aren't for me. Right. right. Yeah. Whereas... Well,
0: and I think that part of the, I mean, so I don't, so I don't personally feel like I can be prescriptive about that kind of thing. Like, I think it's really, like, if you are somebody who you feel like your passion and the way that you work can mm-hmm. only be working on your own stuff then I can't be like sure? well you yeah. should really go you know <laughs> get yourself a salary you job go work for you um, yeah right. but like on the other hand, I think that something that is like talked about somewhat less uh or or is not like as um openly obvious in a lot of cases a lot of the really big like indie hits have come from people who have like who started out getting experience in bigger companies and then left to their own thing or whatever. Um, and so, because I think there is this sort of like this, you know, platonic ideal of like somebody just like they were in high school or college and they just started making games in their bedroom and they made one that was really yeah. good, you know, and a lot of people, there's like this unspoken chapter of like, well, Actually, they, like, worked at Ubisoft for a while, yeah. and then they got tired of that, and then they made a game in their yeah. basement. You know, and, like, I don't I don't think that means that that's, like, what you have to do, yeah. but there's certainly some real value to, like, getting yourself in a position where you can be around people who have more experience than you do and, like, get a head start. I'm like, oh, here's how you, like, build something that can ship. Okay, yeah, yeah. cool. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, I was just straight up a bad designer when I was, like, 23 or whatever. Right. Like, I mean, that's just... That's just what, I mean, I remember some of my first ideas and first, like, you know, like, you know, come up with an idea for a trade system and, like, you know, I just totally overdid it, right? You know, just came up with all these, like, things that were, like, way too complicated and, like, you know, um, you know, you got to figure out a way to work through that if you want to become good at designing games. And, you know, how are you going to do that if... If you going to gain feedback. Right. right. Well, and, right.
0: I, and I think that the one part of what you said, I think, is certainly applicable, which is, you know, you were given a chance to make mistakes mm. and then be able to correct them. And right. I think that that is a hugely valuable part of working on a larger team, especially on a larger team for something that doesn't have a ton of profile to it. Like, I mean, was your first job working on, like...
1: My first full time job. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, I, I did like a couple internships, DA. Okay. On like a boxing game for the PlayStation. Okay. So that was like, and that was kind of nice, just to like get over the hump, right? Yeah. But like, but yeah, Civ three was basically like this was the beginning.
0: Yeah. And so like, that game has a lot of profiles. So like, the, the, <laughs> but like I when I started out, well, I mean the thing is, like I think that's kind of like, but that's sort of what were you doing on those? uh Were they Fight Night games?
1: Knockout Kings. Okay, what was the name of it? Right. That, was, that was the series before. So
0: you were know, an speak. intern. So what did an intern? Were you a programming intern? Yeah, I
1: was like doing like some AI code and yeah. doing like the replay system and okay. like, the stuff like that. So
0: I mean, so I feel like I feel like it's easy to gloss over that. You know, it's like, oh yeah, my first real job was also you know I was a programmer on these boxing games on yeah. PlayStation. But like, I bet that like on balance that period of internship before you feel like your career really started was actually really valuable to, like, learn about a lot of stuff about, like, oh, I did a bad job and somebody told me why and I can do better now, etc. And, like, you know, when I was, when I started out, I started my first job was as a a cert QA tester at Sony um, in Mm -hmm. uh, South Bay here. And then for a year I worked as internal QA at this small, ill-fated uh mmo studio here in the city mm. and then well, hold fr- on a second. let's, let's yeah. jump
1: to let's jump back to the timeline all right um so you you know you graduated from from prone state yeah and is, is this what you went for right away yeah like um you started sending out resumes to like game companies basically yeah i
0: mean well so my wife had finished her undergrad like a year and a half year before i had mm-hmm. and she was going into um into graduate school but she she worked as like a lab assistant in mm-hmm. the interim. Cause that's like good for getting into to grad school. So she got into grad school here in San Francisco at the same time that I was finishing my undergrad. And so we were like, okay, we'll move down here together. Right. It was a different time in San Francisco. <laughs> we, we, we rented a two bedroom apartment with two, with another couple that we had met um, uh-huh. that were looking for roommates, but it was right at the top of Hayes Valley. And, the people that moved in were two grad students, one person that worked for a non-profit and myself who was just straight up unemployed. <laughs> and we got an apartment at the top of Hayes Valley in San Francisco. You remember how much it cost? Uh $1400. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so, uh but when we moved down here yeah. and um and we were like uh you know, I uh part of why my wife chose to go to grad school here was because she knew I wanted to get in the games industry mm-hmm. and there's like yeah. game stuff here, That's right? So I was I was fortunate that pretty soon after we moved down, I, you know, got an interview for, a, it's a contract QA job, you know, um, at, at Sony. Um,
1: yeah. Did you just sent tons of resumes out and that was like, Uh, I
0: think, I mean, I don't think that I, I didn't send out a ton of resumes because there weren't that many thing, like for somebody with no experience, like I wasn't going for design jobs or anything at that point. So like, um, there was only so many, there was like, yeah, basically LucasArts, EA and Sony Sony. would basically be your options. I think, um, at that point, uh, I mean, there'd be
1: more, but how would you even find out about them necessarily? Right.
0: I mean, like... Yeah. Well, I mean, even like Telltale had not been started yet, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, so, so I, I did, I did six months at, at Sony as cert QA. Mm-hmm. What were what games? Um, so I was third party offline. So there was one side that would do like multiplayer testing. So this was PS2 and um, PSP games. Mm-hmm. Um. So before the PS3 and before the Vita and that stuff, um, uh, it was the kind of thing where they would – you would get like – you know, they, they would give you a game and you would be on it for like a week or two kind of thing. And they would basically just be like, play all the way through it, then just keep banging on it, look for bucks. You know, it was basically just like they had –
1: and it would just cycle games like yeah. so fast
0: that well, yeah, it would be like probably like a couple weeks at a time, something like that. And it was really interesting. I mean, it was a really value. It was actually a really, really valuable experience for me because when you play games as an end user, mm-hmm. even if you play a bad game, right, it's self-selecting. You decided to play a bad game, and in this job, they'd bring you a game and they're like, "Play this for eighty hours," and you're like, "Okay, well." Okay, (laughs) like you, you, and and it was like I, I think that I was assigned to one of the like Ice Age tie-in games at some point. I was assigned to Mark Echo's getting up contents under pressure uh, for a while. (laughs) I was assigned to some weird Japanese like turn-based ship. Battling game, but it was like an alternate history of World War II where the ships had like plasma cannons and stuff on them.
1: All right, anymore? Uh, so, <laughs>
0: yeah, like, uh, like it, but you know, there was like, there was just a lot of cases where it's like, okay, play this game you never would have chosen to play, and actually, don't just play it, but like get deeply familiar with it, and that that experience of saying like, I have to understand, like, I have no choice but to understand how. This game I never would have played otherwise is Mm -hmm. constructed and why they made, not necessarily why they made the decisions, but like some version of like what. And because the interesting thing is you would play a game that was basically like the knockoff bad version of a game you actually liked. And it's like it throws into stark relief. You're like, oh, that's why it worked so well in XYZ game. Right because this it's, game tried to do that it's and it's it. not good and yeah. I can see you know and so like all that stuff was really interesting and, and, and really valuable um, but then between that and then after that um, yeah when I when I was a QA tester at Perpetual Studios um, in the city uh, I that name, but. they were they they started they made the original version of Star Trek online and then okay. when they went out of business they sold it to the Studio that is city of heroes, i think yeah um uh, but uh the there, there was there was there's a lot of value to just having been like the internal q a had different value, which was you're working in a dev studio every day, so even if you're just in q a you know you you internalize an understanding of how a game gets made, you know you see like like New stuff comes into the build. You test it. You see updates to that. You know, like you. There is this. There is this value before you go into your real, you know, your first job where you're like actually creating content. To just being like, oh, I kind of get the flow of just like how this software comes together and how it goes through revisions and like why it's bad when this thing changes and that doesn't and how stuff can break so you don't break it. You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so you know, and then my first design job. Um, I was a level designer on Fear Perseus Mandate um, okay. at TimeGate Studios. It was the second expansion pack for Fear.
1: Is that in Texas?
0: Uh, yeah, outside of Houston. Sugarland, you, you Texas. Moved,
1: you moved down to... Wow.
0: Yep, I moved to Sugarland, Texas for my first design job. I lived in Texas for six months. Yeah. Um,
1: and you were a sorry. You were a level designer, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: I was a level designer on that. Basically, like.
1: How did you apply for that? I mean, like, how did you enter that job? Like, yeah.
0: Um, well, I so I had been I had been making my own levels um, using the Fear editor uh-huh. um, oh, okay. and putting them online oh. and like entering like fan contests or whatever. And somebody that why, I, why fear? Uh, because I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I wanted to make a level design portfolio and. I wanted to make levels that were like single player, that had like story elements to them. Mm-hmm. And I really liked Fear. I really liked No One Lives Forever. Um, yeah. The same creative team was responsible for Nolf and Nolf 2 and mm-hmm. Fear. And I really loved the gameplay of Fear. I loved like the slow motion. It was like, I don't know, it's a really crunchy game. It's like, it's, I, I enjoyed the gameplay a lot. And Monolith released basically just their internal SDK. They're mm-hmm. just like, here's all of our tools. You can make anything that we made. We're not going to put out that much documentation. Like it's your problem, but like, you know, go for it. And there's, there wasn't like a big fan community making level. So there wasn't a lot of like, go on a forum and somebody already knows how to do it. Like they probably don't. Um, But they released all the tools to make like your own scripted scenes and to like write new radio messages and have them, you Mm -hmm. know, play when you're playing and and like put in all the story stuff that they had. And so I was like, okay, well I like the game the tools I released let me make anything that I want in it. And this is like the kind of game that I want to make. So I'm going to make levels for this thing. And so the, the way it worked out was, yeah, I was making levels and just like posting about them online. And somebody that was on a forum that I was on was like, Hey, um, I work at the studio. We're making an expansion pack for fear and we need a level designer. I know you make levels for fear, so you should totally apply. And so I did. And they were like, Hey, when you get this thing done soon, you already know how to make levels yeah, for this yeah, game? Yeah. You're hired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as long as you'll Dude, move down to Texas. And blah, to blah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of those things, like, not to go back to the student thing for too long, but like, it's one of those things where people ask, like, oh, what engine should I use? You know, like, what tool set should I use? Like, should I use like Unreal because that's what the most studios use or whatever? I'm like, well, make, make stuff for a game that you're actually excited about because people will be able to tell. Mm-hmm. And. If you make it in a tool set that's like the most popular one, okay, your percentage chance of like already knowing the tools goes up a little bit, but like sometimes you're the one guy that knows how to use the weird tool that nobody else is making stuff with and the studio needs that person. So you get in, you know, like if I had been making stuff with Unreal, I don't know if I would have gotten hired for that job, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, so, so it was basically just like right place, right time. Somebody was like... You know how to use our tool set already. You should, you should apply for this job, and um, and also I knew I didn't want to relocate to Texas like long term or whatever. But they were like, work on this expansion pack. It's like halfway done. We have to ship it in six months. I was like, okay, well, I'll move down to Texas for six months. The next then I come back to San Francisco. Like, sounds great.
1: Sure.
0: Um, so, but that brings it all the way around to. It's really. It was really a good experience to be able to say like, okay, this is a really low budget project. Nobody really is paying attention. Like yeah. we're making something and if we fuck it up, it's not going to like, it's that's, okay. Right. You that's, know, like that's it's that's a right. very, very low pressure, mm-hmm. kind of like safe space to fail and have other people around you that are like, oh, hey, you know, fix this, fix that, whatever. But like being able to like... Have your first foray, not have a whole lot of people looking at you while you're, while you're doing it is is very nice. Like, when I worked at when I worked at Irrational, there were people that I was working with that, like, Bioshock Infinite was their first project they'd ever worked on. And I was yeah. like, I do not that's envy tough. you yeah. for a minute, like, being on something that high profile and having to, like, hope you don't fuck it up.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, at Access traditionally, that's, like, what the expansion packs are. They're, like, right. a great place to, like, let people... If they want to be a designer, like, here you go. Like, you know, make yeah. a scenario. Start doing this stuff, yeah. you know? Like, you know, if it's a complete disaster, maybe we just won't ship it, right? right. You know, but, yeah. like, you know, the upside is, hey, if you do something great, then now you're going to be able to help us out, like, with future projects, and, yeah. you know, that'll be awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. like, it's really important to have that opportunity. Yeah.
0: Well, and I mean, like, when I, I mean, not to jump too far forward, but, like, I think that was something that was really good. I feel like, I feel like, like, DLC is less, not exactly, but, like, there's still a lot of DLC, but like, I feel like story DLC, like expansion style mm. DLC is maybe like less prevalent than it used to be, but it was a great place to be like, oh, well, we're making some more missions.
1: Right.
0: We'll yeah. give some people a shot who haven't gotten to lead a thing before or whatever. Same yeah. kind of thing. You know, it's like, okay, well, people already bought the main game. It's right. fine. If this DLC is weird or janky or something, like, it's not going to be that, that big a deal. So like, right. go for it. You know? Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So what, uh, so in fear, what, like, do you remember like stuff about like the levels you made and like how that worked out and like,
0: yeah, yeah, no, I, um, God, I have a lot of stories from that. that, <laughs> It was an interesting place because it, so like, I, you know, my first design job, it was 2007. Um, but it really felt like what I imagine working on something like that in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, would have been, like, just, like, the, just the feel of, like, it had, like, a lot of classic, like, game development geeks Mm -hmm. at that place. It just felt like, and, and, like, there were dudes that had, like, big, chunky, cream-colored CRT monitors on their (laughs) desks. It was 2007, you know, like, just, like, it was, it felt like a classic, you know, just, like, there was maybe, I forget, there was maybe, like, 30, 20 30 people on the team you know and right. and so I, I i felt like i got to have my first design job be a little bit of a time warp to like i bet people were just knocking stuff together like this 10 years ago you know what i mean um but you know it, it was nice to start out on that like kind of small team feeling and how many
1: people were on the project were you like one of 10 or something or
0: I, I think I think it was like yeah, fifteen or twenty maybe, mm. something like that total. Um including, yeah, environment art, programmers, etc. Um Yeah, I, I'm I value having having gotten to to have that kind of throwback experience. It was cool. But um I got on late enough that my two jobs were there's a main campaign and then there were instant action levels. Cause like, you know, fear the The combat is really cool and um and so they they had made this additional feature that was like there's the campaign and then you can also just go into these these like replayable kind of like um like time attack kind of levels that's like enemy it's like spawn a, it's and the combat arena or yeah or it's either like you're trying to like run a course like it's sort of like it's a you know level that's like try to get the best time or yeah it's like a score based like survival kind of thing um so my two jobs were I was assigned to do like a scare pass to the main campaign. Cause they're like, we have all the levels in, but there aren't enough like freaky scripted events. So like play through it and find opportunities where you could put in like a ghost moment or a hallucination or something weird. So like I went through and find places, found places and pitched, Oh, we could put something here. We could put something there. And then did like, you know, the scripting to like make the shit show up or make a window break and screen effects and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, yeah, my other the other side of it was um, making a few instant action levels that were either just like, um, did you ever play that game? Oh God, what was it called? It was actually pretty cool. Um, the club. Uh, I, I
1: never played. One it one one. was from the late.
0: Yeah, it was from like the late two thousands, and it was like a it was like kind of like a speedrun time trial based FPS, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so like one of the levels I made was sort of more like that, where it was like you spawn in and you're trying to get to the end of the level as fast as possible. So it was really about just, like, you know, learning the level and, like, headshotting the guys and getting the thing and, like, you know, using the splash damage from the missile as the guys are, like, coming out to get both of them at once and all that kind of stuff. And then the other one was a total, um, yeah, arena mission, you know, arena fight where it's, like, you spawn in and... Just I just used scripting to just like, you know, spawn guys in spawn clauses and have them come in. It was just a wave based thing. Um, but I got to do some fun scripting. Like, um I I set it up so you would fight a wave and then I like had a helicopter fly over and then spawned like a supply crate and had it fall down into the arena and break open mm-hmm. and so it like kind of drew you over there to get more supplies and then spawned guys on the other side and blah blah blah. Um so it was a it was a really good, it was a really good actual, it was a really good mix actually of being like, you both need to like do totally canned scripted story mm-hmm. moments and just build gameplay ass gameplay levels. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, then, you know, once I, once how I would,
1: how would you get feedback on it? Like that.
0: Like were, I don't think were there really different. was much. I, don't, I th- basically, I think our lead designer was would just play stuff and yeah. just tell me what he thought of it. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was pretty ad hoc. I mean, it was uh, it wasn't. You know,
1: do you remember like like for example, like what's like the best thing you did and like what's like the worst thing you did?
0: Um, I I, I really like. I did honestly. I really liked the um the arena map that i did mm-hmm. and I, I i liked the supply drop thing and i did a i did i did a goofy thing where like you know it was really low fi but a lot of um fears like aesthetic was it was like you would fight through like these office complexes and stuff and then there were labs but there was only a few there was like there's kind of like grungy back streets offices and labs and so i made the arena level be like the courtyard inside of a big office complex. And there's a big piece of corporate sculpture in the middle. that I just made out of BSP squares uh, and like glued them together and scaled the right. textures to make it like a abstract, like blocky sculpture. And yeah. so then, um, I'm a sculptor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that degree, uh, paying for itself. Um, and, uh, and so the last thing that happens in that, in that arena map is a helicopter flies over and so you think it's going to be a supply drop, but then it lowers down and it has one of the mechs, like, suspended from the underside of it. And then it drops and, like, smashes the sculpture. And it, like, <laughs> smashes everywhere. And then you have to fight the robot. So, like, I don't know. Like, doing something fun with what you have sure. is satisfying. Yeah. Uh, God, the worst thing I did. The worst thing I did is probably um, I I, I specced in this um, this scripted moment in the campaign where you're, like, in this kind of lab area. And there's, like, this weird, like, centrifuge kind of thing in the middle. And it was, like, spinning around and stuff, and I was like, okay, what if a hallucination starts and, like, all these lights start flashing and then, like, a bunch of, like, specter ghost guys from the game, like, all, like, rise up and surround you and stuff. And I put it in, and I was like, that's cool. And then, like, the other designer whose level it was, who had to, like, catch it and actually ship it, was like, uh, yeah, that makes the game run at, like, five frames a second. Uh, <laughs> I am going to have to actually fix all this shit now. I was like, sorry. <laughs> Uh, so learning about doing
1: sustainable work uh, <laughs> was part of the experience. <laughs> nice, yeah, cool. So that game shipped? and it shipped, yeah. And it, you figured you like you know you always knew it was gonna be a short term thing, right? So yeah,
0: I mean, I, I knew that I was gonna gonna go back to San Francisco, and then um, I did. I kept working for them remotely for a while, okay. um, helping them with like they were they had taken a contract for a thing and we're doing like a uh vertical slice kind of thing so i helped them with that for a while but then yeah um it was actually at gdc in 2008 um that two K Marin had just been founded like Mm -hmm. shortly before that to make bioshock 2 um and, you know, I wasn't, like, actively looking for a new job or something. But, like, I was at GDC and I was like, well, I mean, I did you, would.
1: Did you buy yourself a pass at GDC or was it part um, of the company like, How did you end up there?
0: I was, um, well, that year I did buy myself a pass. That, that year I bought myself a pass. But um, the prior two years, the first year, so this is my, it has now been ten years since the first GDC I went to. Which right. is, like, big for, I mean. I didn't. I was saying to somebody, I was like, "Oh yeah, the first GDC I went to was in 2006. Oh, that's ten years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I didn't realize it till I was saying it, but um, the a couple of years before that, um, so Idle Thumbs, uh, mm-hmm. which hosts this fine right. podcast, yes. uh, back in 2005, 2006 was um, a text site. You know, they wrote mm-hmm. articles and posted them, and okay. wrote news and stuff like that. And so, when I was finishing college, um, yeah, there's a lot of story here. So, when I was in college, as part of that whole, like, I just realized I actually want to be a game designer thing, I was, like, writing, I had all these ideas, Mm. and so I was writing, like, you know, I I I had all these thoughts about game design, so I was, like, I wanted an outlet for it, and, uh, per my, uh summer college program thing from high school we had it was the the thing that i went to was the sequential art program aka comics and so as part of that we had like printed our own comic zines basically so i was like okay this is this is sort of before like game critic blogging is a thing but i have all these thoughts uh i want to put out into the world i want to like write these kind of essays about games so i'll make a game essay zine Mm -hmm. and distribute it in portland and, uh, so I did that and I, I made three issues of this a zine. physical zine. Yeah. Yeah. Physically printed, uh, on real paper at Kinko's. <laughs> um.
1: You know, there's this thing called the internet.
0: There is, but I <laughs> didn't, I didn't know how to make a website, but I did know how to <laughs> staple things together. Wow. Um, so, so I made this physical zine and I mean, to be fair, like much like my impetus for, uh, doing the tone control podcast, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and, and much the same as you were saying about designer notes, like, I made the zine, but the thing I really did was then I put it in manila envelopes and I mailed it to a bunch of game development studios and I was like, hey, I'd like to interview... Well, that's that's
1: unusual. Yeah,
0: yeah, sure. But, like, I... So, with the fear thing, right? Like, I was was a big fan of No One Lives Forever and Mm -hmm. No One Lives Forever 2 and fear was either just... No, it was still in development. Um, But, like, I sent a zine to um to to monolith and i was like i had i done i had like searched on moby games or whatever and i was like i'd really like to interview craig hubbard because he was like the writer and and lead designer of the nolf games and of upcoming fear and like i sent i sent one to ken levine and i sent one to tim Mm schaefer and uh and i sent one to the studio that made hitman because i'm a huge fan of the hitman series
1: you've sent you've since met most of these people, right? That Many do of they, them, yeah. they remember?
0: Um, Tim Schaefer remembered, because there was... This, one of the issues that I sent had, like, a fold-out poster kind of thing in the middle uh-huh. of it, and um, it was while they were still working on Psychonauts, and he remembered that they had taken that out and, like, pinned it up on, like, their pinboard in the kitchen or whatever. So, like, he remembered that. Levine did not remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, so, you know, um, I... Did three issues of that zine, and I didn't want to keep printing. Yeah. this I don't know what like <laughs> I wasn't like I was losing money on it like whatever. Sure. But I wanted to keep writing stuff. So, but it was kind of like I said, it was kind of before you were just like, oh yeah, get a WordPress site and, and a make blog. a blog. Yeah. Um, and so around that time, I found Idle Thumbs when they were a text site. Uh-huh. And I started, I, 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 I sent them the text of my Doom 3 review from my zine, <laughs> and uh, and I was like, could you guys use another writer? Your site uh-huh. seems cool. Um, and uh, How did you find them? They were linked on the sidebar of Double Fine's homepage. Wow. Because they were dorks, and they were big fans of Tim Schafer's stuff, and... They had basically like bothered Tim enough so that he had Chris Remo come and be like a playtester for Psychonauts in like 2004 or wow, whatever. Geez. Um, and so at the same time, they were making Idle Thumbs, and wow. Tim knew about it, so he put a link to it on the sidebar of there was double so going I know, so far back, that's, yeah,
1: that's no, right?
0: it's and so like. So I was just looking at the Double Fine homepage, and mm-hmm. so I was like, what's up with the Double Fine action news? And then I saw the links on the side, and I clicked yeah. on it, and I'm like, oh, this seems like, this seems like an interesting site. It seems like they would – they seem to be interested in the same kind of stuff I am. Yep. Um, so I was like, yeah, would you want me to write for your site? And so I started writing for Idle Thumbs. And it turns out Idle Thumbs really had effectively more or less been founded uh, – to scam passes to Ethan and G D C as press. Uh, so yeah, my so first my first two years of GDC were as a press pass via idle thumbs. Um, but yeah, by the by the time that uh, I was there in two thousand eight, I was like, all right, I'm like I've shipped a title as a designer, I should probably not scam a press pass anymore <laughs> anymore.
1: Well, I love the fact that it was founded to scam a press pass, and now a lot of those people give talks at GDC.
0: <laughs> yep, indeed.
1: Fake it till you make it.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. No, they, their first thing that they did together as a group was they all went to like E3 2005 together, I think, because right. they were like,
1: we're press, we're press. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, but uh, yeah, so so that year I bought a pass because I was like, you know, I had gone to GDC a couple of times, and I'm like, I'm not going to miss GDC. I'm back in town, I don't yep. have to travel for it. But well, once I'd, you
1: start going to G C like... It's you know you don't want to miss it right, right. Like, you just, yeah
0: well and you know there, you would leave you you get the early bird discount and the alumni discount and like you, you know it's like it's still expensive but like yeah. if I hadn't been at GDC that year I wouldn't have started working at Two K Marin so like yeah. it's it, it ended up being worth it yeah um, but yeah I was there and basically um, uh, Greg Casavon who mm-hmm. um, I had interviewed him for my zine. And I met him in person for the first time at that GDC, and we were talking, and he was like, hey, you know, I don't know if you're, like, thinking of a new job or anything, but I think you would really get along with the guys from 2K Marine, because he'd been talking to them, Bay Area, whatever. Um, And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was just like, okay, I've shipped one expansion pack that has, like, Mm -hmm. a 61 on Metacritic. Like, (laughs) I don't know exactly why (laughs) the people making a sequel to Bioshock would be interested in me but I would like to work on it. Yeah. And, and so then kicker. So, uh, Chris Remo at that point, he was working for shack news as a, as a reporter. And he had an appointment at the 2k booth to interview Ken Levine post Bioshock having come out. And okay. so he was like, Hey, I'm going over to the 2k booth to interview Ken Levine. You should come. I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I came over. That's when I started talking to the, two k in people. I met, um, Jordan uh-huh. Thomas, who's the, who's the creative director of that game. Yeah. um, and you know i wouldn't i wouldn't have done it if i wasn't a gdc if i didn't have people i knew who like encouraged me to do it i would have just i i wouldn't have even thought to do it right. i would have talked i i wouldn't even gotten to the point of talking myself out of like mm-hmm. i just never even would have thought there would be anything there you know and so like being there having people there that like push you to do stuff like yeah. that's that's what led to me being like well okay i'll go talk to him you know yeah. and then you know
1: but in the i mean what happened in like that initial meeting like how i see you guys made a connection right yeah so. i
0: mean i i talked to okay yes so um so i talked to carlos Coelho who is the um the lead programmer there and then jordan thomas came out and we started talking and um so zine idle thumbs but then while i was a tester Um, was when I started really like getting serious about making levels for my level design portfolio. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, idle thumbs had kind of like gone quiet a little bit more. And also I wanted a a place to basically have like a level design progress journal. I was like, okay, I'm going to make levels at home, but I'm also going to like, I want to like keep a a progress journal of like, here's what I did. Here's what I'm going to do next, whatever. Um, and so I did start a WordPress WordPress blog, uh, fulbright.blogspot.com, mm-hmm. uh, and it was like, here, you know, I'm starting, I'm making a level, here's the gray box, why or whatever. It, why was
1: it called Fulbright?
0: Fulbright is level design jargon for when you turn off all of the lighting in an editor and you can see all of the surfaces at full brightness. So stuff isn't covered by shadows, and you can, like, align textures in the corners and stuff like that
1: not um, sound like a fancy an old fashioned company or <laughs>
0: <laughs> no it's a it's a it's an option in the fear editor and I think also in like um I think it's a term in like the hammer editor for like half life and stuff okay. like that um so I was like, right. okay, so
1: you got this blog
0: yeah and and I'm gonna like it'll be my level design progress blog um but then you know, I was making levels and and I didn't really have an outlet for all of the you know like oh, let's talk about like design, theory, whatever kind of stuff. And so I just started writing essays about, like, oh, here's an observation about this game I'm playing or a thought about, blah, blah, blah. Yeah.
1: Well, that's the first time I remember your name because Jonathan Blow gave a talk where he referenced something that you said. Right, on the, right,
0: right, right, like, yeah.
1: like I don't think your name, but the Fulbright stuck in my head. Sure. I remember that. Yeah, no, that
0: was name. really cool when, when he linked that. Um, and so I had written a blog post, like, not intentionally with this timing, but I had written a blog post, um, like, maybe, like, a week before GDC or something mm-hmm. that had gotten, like, reposted on Gamasutra and picked up and kind of, like, passed around as, like, oh, people are, like, whatever, mm-hmm. um, having opinions <laughs> about this. <laughs> and so when I was at the 2K booth, I was, like, you know, Jordan was, like, hi, I'm Jordan. I'm, like, oh, hey, I'm I'm Steve uh and he was like oh steve Gaynor, i read that blog post that you did oh, you know and so like you you've got like a starting point of like oh we can... Yeah. and the thing was it was a you know it was a blog post that like you could it at least
1: what was the line do you remember I...
0: that was the that was the the blog post that was called the wager and it was basically like it was a point where i was feeling kind of pessimistic and saying like i don't think games are going to Escape kind of like the stigma that like comic books Mm -hmm. haven't escaped, as far as just being like, yeah, there is great stuff being done in the medium, but like the overall impression is that it's not, you know, like, yeah. Um, and so it was about like, sort of like, here are the things that I feel like games face similar challenges, and like, I bet they're not really gonna grow out of that and be as accepted as XYZ, blah Mm blah blah, you know, so like, whatever, that's not, it's not like the greatest uh, blog post or piece of reasoning in the world. And I wouldn't blah, 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 blah. I wouldn't write it the same way these days, but like at the very least it gave you a pretty, um, distinct vantage point to say like, "Huh, well that's what this guy's opinion is. And that's interesting. And we can talk about that and blah, blah, blah. Right. So, um, I think that, you know, they were, it was good that I had some ship titles for an FPS and had done all this stuff. And like, you know, I, I, Interviewed and did a level design test and all that kind of stuff, but I think that a big part of why they gave me the time of day was because we had that kind of stuff to talk about. It's like, okay, well, we're a new studio, we're at a point where we can take some risks on like who we hire. We don't necessarily just have to be like, okay, here's somebody who can just like jam out some BSP and like ship some you know uh, some enemy spawns tomorrow. Um, and the perspective that they saw when we were discussing things you know they're like okay this is this is worth considering being like part of our studio you know what yeah. i mean um yeah so you know and i was i was it's not the kind of I, I don't think they ever would have like relocated me or something sure. right but like yeah. i'm in town right et cetera et cetera um, so they
1: didn't they invite you for an interview at that point basically yeah
0: like um we talked at the booth and then I caught up with Jordan at like one of the like after party kind of, or one of the mm-hmm. GDC party kind of things. And we talked and, you know, it was like, it's one of those things where it was when you're whatever, 24 and you, and you know, you're like, I had been, you know, I, I sent Ken Levine a copy of my zine because I was such a huge fan of like system shock too. Yeah. And you know, it was before Bioshock came out, but I remember I was, in, I was the guy in the break room at, timegate when i was still working on on that fear expansion that like the day the bioshock demo came out on mm-hmm. 360 i like downloaded it and i was the guy that like played through it and everybody watched you know and, yeah, yeah. and we were all like damn you know and so like um when you're in that state and you're like whoa i'm i'm amazed i'm actually talking to these guys and you know jordan's like oh we'll have you up for an interview yeah we'll email me you know we'll get you up i was like really you know um i will interview you i will email (laughs) you yeah exactly (laughs) um but you know so like when so yeah that but they they followed through and they Uh we did a phone interview where we talked for a long time about you know what my favorite fps levels were and why and blah 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 blah. and then yeah i came in and and did the on-site and
1: uh so yeah it worked out worked out were the shock games some of your favorite games just just straight up
0: yeah system shock 2 definitely bioshock by that point because it had come out certainly um i really liked swat 4 which was an irrational game i love swat 4 yeah that's a fun game yeah no i thought it was fantastic um and and so you know that was between system shock 2 and and bioshock uh irrational and like freedom force I, I, I was i was yeah. a big fan of all their stuff um I had tried to play System Shock 1 a few times and, mm-hmm. like, I got to it too late. Yeah, yeah. I ended up, it, 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 I bounced off it enough times, but actually, the first time I played through, I didn't actually finish it, but I did get to, like, deck eight and almost finish it. Uh, System Shock 1 was when I was working on Minerva's Den because, like, Minerva's Den was very much, like, uh, an intentional throwback to System Shock 2, and I was like, I also want to play, like, Shock 1 and get yeah. the basis. So, like, I eventually got my head around it.
1: What but... did you? So what did you like about System Shock 2 so much?
0: I think that it's, and I think you can say this about Bioshock as well, I think it's it's kind of that, that thing that, you know, we were talking about with, like, point-and-click adventure games, you know, where it's like, I'm playing an FPS but I feel like I'm in a world that is vibrantly inhabited by people, you know, like they're not here right now, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I'm in a space where people have lived. And I feel like I'm in another world, not in terms of like, because it's so alien, like the Mars Mars base
1: demons or whatever.
0: It's more because you're like, Oh, this is like, this is somewhere that I can picture actually being because somebody had coffee at this, table before i got here and like you know like i'm like yes there's been like this terrible disaster that's happened
1: or after half-life half-life
0: half-life one was before system shock two by like a year okay um and i I was a fan of half-life one as well but i feel like that got away from the um being in the place where people actually like spent their time pretty quickly like Mm -hmm. the intro of that game was great like Ruining that guy's lunch in the microwave is great, yeah. but, like, you get into a lot of, like, vent shafts and, just, you know, yeah, yeah. train tracks and stuff mm-hmm. pretty pretty quick. Um, But, you know, I, th- I think that with System Shock 2, it was, yeah, the audio diaries, the feeling of being in a place where it's like, oh, this area is, like, the you know, basically like the apartment tower or like they had the mall, you know, you're like, okay, I, I can recognize this as a place that has a function. I can imagine being here. And if this, if everything wasn't fucked up, this is where I would go to like see a movie. And then the other side of it is the whole like RPG geek stuff of like, Oh wow. I'm like getting cyber modules and deciding if I'm going to specialize in, you know, exotic weapons or research, you know, and, and all of the, cause you know, I've, I've, I've been enough of a system Z geek that, that that added depth of like oh I like have an inventory and you know I'm like conserving my ammo types and everything you know it, it, it talked to a lot of the things that like adventure games and FPS games and RPGs and something like Resident Evil where it's like no you have like four bullets like yeah. is it like right, make them count uh, all that stuff I think really added up to something that felt um, incredibly. I, it's not cohesive, because System Shock 2 is actually an incredibly broad game, but it, it all adds up to something that's very distinctive, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, and And complete, not in a way that it's, like, the perfectly balanced, like, singular design, but complete in that it kind of, like, speaks to all the aspects of the experience that it's trying to put in front of you in a way that it actually, like, addresses all of them and doesn't leave any off the table. That can lead to a lot of, like, actual, like, over-complexity, <laughs> but if you're on board for it, then uh there's there's a lot there you know what i mean yeah yeah,
1: so what did you think of bioshock then
0: I really loved bioshock yeah i mean i i played it on my uh i played it on my gaming laptop when i when i lived in uh in texas still um i i had a there i mean
1: so that game is was much more i would imagine conceptually strong right,
0: right yeah i mean it it had the It had, I mean, you know, it was effectively, in a lot of ways, systemically, and even like campaign structurally, Mm -hmm. effectively a remake of System Shock Mm Two. But they obviously did a lot of like design um, adjustment of core systems, and they added in the whole like Big Daddy and Little Sister thing, which is amazing. Um, But then, yeah, the the added presentational level of like the world looks amazing, and. Like the intro is unforgettable, and there's all this stuff that it's like the the fidelity of how they were showing you that stuff was was next level, and then yeah, the the whole aspect of the political side of it, and the historical side of it, and the sci-fi like additionally like weird, surprising um, uh, side of like okay, you know like. System Shock 2 was effectively like a sort of more hardcore like Star Trek the Next Generation episode. It's like, mm-hmm. oh no, some like parasitic worms came onto the ship, but like Bioshock definitely was, I think, the next step towards like what does what are do these genetic modifications mean to the people to this society right, and the like, choices you know, that are
1: important were made by people like they got themselves into trouble basically. right
0: yeah and and you know so much of it i think was it was really satisfying because so much of it was was when when you tried to dig down to the to the basis of it you're like oh yeah that is that actually justifies itself you know you can totally get this idea of Once you buy the sci fi conceit of like plasmids or whatever, where you're like, okay, people can use this substance to just modify their genes, Uh. but it's effectively like an addictive drug. It's like, yeah, that actually people would be unable to resist trying to make themselves perfect humans using this stuff, and then they wouldn't be able to keep up with it. And that is why this society is torn apart. And just thinking about that stuff that speaks, like you were saying, like more to the basis of the disaster is like human nature mm-hmm. you know and and the kind of allegorical aspect of that um i think was really fascinating and you know the voice acting was fantastic andrew ryan's voice acting is is fantastic um so i you know i i
1: so you were you were excited to work i
0: was a, i was a big fan project. and yeah i uh, <laughs> i was i was excited to work on the sequel and i was
1: had the project what what state was the project in at that point, you were hired to be a level designer, basically. Yeah, I was
0: hired to be a level designer, and um, I was hired myself and Tynan Wales, who is now a level designer at Fulbright. We were mm-hmm. the first two level designers hired um, outside of the Seed crew that had come from Irrational, and mm-hmm. then our programmer at Fulbright now, Leon. He and I started on the same day at Two. 2- <laughs> to give her in. So there's a lot of, uh, yep. there's a lot of early, early project, uh, people that, that I'm now still working with. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I was like the 16th employee of the studio and, um, I ended up being tasked with like being the level designer that built the first like, like alpha level, like for like internal presentation to the publisher or whatever. So like when I came on, it was, there was like, there were pitches for all the levels, but I don't think any of them were built. Like, I think that JP LeBreton, who was the lead level designer had, he had done like some level kind of like design documents and flow documents. And I think Mm -hmm. had maybe, I think there was some gray block stuff but it was, like, early test yep. kind of stuff. Like, I remember the first stuff that I did was basically just for getting acclim- acclimated. They were like, okay, build, like, a room that connects to, another, to a hallway to another room that has, like, functional doors. And then, like, follow these docks to, like, get a Big Daddy and Little Sister patrol set up. So that, like, a Big Daddy will, like, go to a vent and get a Little Sister out and patrol around and then put us, so it was like, it was like, okay, just like get the very core units of what this game is into a level and then start thinking about like what actual levels are we making? But um, yeah, it was, it was very early, you know, there was kind of like an overall story pitch and like a, a, the arc of the game was, was written down, but that stuff changed a lot over the course of development, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah.
1: All right. Well, Tell me the story about Bioshock Two then, or your your <laughs> yeah. experience with it. Like,
0: um, yeah, I mean, I, I started there in yeah, mm, God, could I have started in March? That can't be right. It could be right.
1: That would have been basically right away. Yeah, I mean, that would have been, been right
0: after. I mean, I'm I don't know. I must have started. I I think. I mean, this might have been one of the GDCs that was like actually in like February or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I might have like gotten the job offer at, like at some point in March. I don't remember, but it was like spring of 2008 Mm -hmm. and the game ended up shipping spring of 2010. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, we, we had, you know, there was some stuff that was just going to be true that it was like, you play as a big daddy. Uh They had the big sister thing as a thing already. Um, they knew that it was like, rapture 10 years later or whatever Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean it was one of those things where like
1: did you guys have a lot of apprehension about because it seems like there was a lot of people who were like it felt like bioshock should have been just a one-off right like
0: i mean i how do i put this like as a fan i i felt that i felt that apprehension about uh, like is this project really necessary (laughs) but as as a fan given an opportunity to try to do a good job, I was like, well, you know, if it's happening, let's try and make something cool. You know what I mean? Um, and, and, you know, I I think that when you start as a fan, it's easy to be conflicted and Mm -hmm. be like, like, if I was purely a fan, I might feel one way about it. But as someone who is also working on the thing, it's, it's, it, it, it was certainly interesting. Um, But, you know, I think one of the things about that project was, you know, I I think that it certainly has good and and bad things about the final product, but the fact that they were building a team and a game and a sequel to such an iconic game, no less, all at the same time, and actually got it done in the amount of time they did to 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 the level of quality that ended up being i think Mm. is like i don't know yeah they they started from eight people and got up to 80 and and shipped the damn thing and i think that a lot of what's there on screen you know is an artifact of like it's a group of people that were figuring out how to make this game and how to work together and what it was going to be like all at the same time um so it was a really fascinating development process to go through. Um,
1: Do you remember like what some of the major changes were, or did things?
0: There was going to be underwater combat for a while.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It ended up just being underwater, <laughs> minus the combat, uh, because you know pretty quick, not that not as quickly as you might have hoped, but pretty quickly you learn like if you make underwater combat either it's a totally different game, sure, or you're like just like doubling it's you're just, like it's
1: the same game, but
0: you're underwater Right, well, it's it's either the same. it's totally different or it's kind of the same. but now there's like an underwater version of every plasmid, so now it's just like, oh, now I got twice a minute like it was it was not the kind of it was there was a lot of work done with it and there was some cool stuff that was done with it, but it was prototypy and it was like. You know, once stuff got into really, like, okay, this just needs to be production, it's, like, the first thing that got... It was, like, it was, like, okay, well, if we don't have combat underwater, that's way less work. It's, like, okay, well, then... Because, I mean, at the end of the day, it you know, the 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 aesthetic payoff, I think, is, like, just being out in the ocean, even just for little bits. So, you know, I think it, it was a good thing to say, like, okay, actually... You should just go out into the water every once in a while and like have that aesthetic experience, yeah. and then get back to the game.
1: Well, so let me ask what like what were your what were the team's high level goals for like justifying the sequel? Like, did you guys think of that? I mean, I don't have, like, like
0: I don't I. So I was not I was certainly not on the level that was part of those discussions. Mm-hmm. I think that
1: I mean I don't justify the sequel maybe is like overdoing it. I mean, just like what were what were like the guiding principles? Like, what were you guys trying hmm. to accomplish for the game?
0: Um. I mean, I think that, you know, like, let's see. I mean, it's a, it's a hard question for me to answer. Like, honestly, I, I, I think that would be an interesting question to ask Jordan Thomas. Yeah. Um, have you, and by the way, you should consider talking to him if you hadn't because
1: um, having dinner with him on Friday.
0: Awesome. Okay, <laughs> uh, p- pitch him on on getting on Mike because yeah, their game their indie game, the magic mm-hmm. circle has come out and he worked at Ion storm Austin. Yep. Like, so like I will leave that to him or Alyssa right. or Zach. I think from my perspective, I just like, I was just making levels. Right. And so like, I mean, obviously I was part of discussions of like yeah. some, I mean, some you're... designing stuff, but like from my perspective, I was like, I just want to do a good enough job that I feel like we're doing justice to the level of quality that I would expect out of this thing. You know what I mean? Because it's like, I was a fan, if I was gonna play this game, I would just I would I would just want more Bioshock and good. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so like I think that it was one of those things where it's like, from my perspective, it was like I have a lot to learn, I need mm-hmm. to figure out how to make a good Bioshock level, and yeah. then try to Apply that in a way that is surprising and isn't just like oh I played yeah. that before. You so what, what was I mean? the
1: process of going from where you started to making levels that you were happy with and like you felt like they made the game better? Well,
0: so honestly, so one of the it's 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 kind of interesting. Um, I think that one of the one of the greatest advantages that I had when I was starting out was and it, you know this isn't unique like anybody who doesn't have a lot of experience one of your greatest advantages is just not having internalized what you shouldn't do or what you can't do or whatever so you're like this seems cool i'll try it you know and like maybe you end up having to scale it back or something but um i was my the main level that i was like the owner of was um poppers drop which is like the fourth level it's a level where there's a little intro section and then you come into there's this big atrium that has like a fifties diner like sitting in the middle of it, like mm-hmm. freestanding. And then further on, basically the pitch for it was that it was like structured more like an extern like a surface style city, but just like under the dome of, of raptures And there's this other part where there's basically like another atrium and there's like four buildings that mm-hmm. you like are going between them and stuff. And and the intent was to kind of like, you know, make it feel like a little have a little bit of that like feeling of like Hell's Kitchen and Deus Ex or whatever, where you're sort mm. of like, oh, I'm going between individual structures, and like I have a dialogue between you know these these spaces, but they're all contiguous. Um, and you know, that's not the kind of that's not the kind of structure that Bioshock levels generally had. Mm-hmm. And some of that is like for performance and stuff, and some of it is just like it's not necessarily so much of what a lot of the Gameplay tools are necessarily like inherently built to support, but like I don't know. I'm glad that I was just like, well, if there's just buildings inside the buildings, you know, and and that. Did you make that idea that probably decision wouldn't...
1: to like make it very different? Um, or? I pitched
0: it. I mean, like, so the how do I put this? Um, the creative pitch, like the creative, like because a lot of the the pitches for the levels, like the the level briefs, you mm-hmm. know, came from Jordan and JP, but like the level brief that they brought me was that it was like, this is like the part of the rapture that this is the part of rapture. That's like kind of like under the train, like under the elevated tracks, you know, it's mm-hmm. like the part under the bridge kind of. And so I think for me, I was like, cool. That should feel like you're like in something that feels like a city, like little sections of a city. Um, and so, you know, um, at that point, you're like, you know, you go through the whole process of doing the paper map, and you're like, this is how the game would be here, and then you, you gray block it out, and um, I think it ended up being a pretty unique, you know, part of the game, and I was I was happy with a lot of it, um, but, you know, it was, the, the overall, um, the overall flow was like, okay, when we showed up, there was a story arc that meant that it was this level and this level and this level, and, you know, you caught one of the levels, it had, mechanical intros in it. It had a a pitch for what like the identity of the the space was supposed to be fictionally. And then it was like, how do you express that through a layout and through a set of quest objectives and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, I was Yeah, I, I think that when you are in that position you can agree or disagree with decisions that are coming down from a higher level of production, but like at the end of the day, you don't have a ton of context for them. You know, not, not necessarily because, like, the process isn't transparent or anything, but just because, like, you don't have enough experience to be like, that's empirically a bad decision. You know, you can be like, I don't think I would like that if I was playing this, and maybe you're wrong, or maybe it turns out you're right, or whatever. But, like, I think enough of your headspace is just in, like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> These people are telling me, here's, like, the job that I have, and I'm going to figure out how to do, like, the best job I can within the space that I actually have control over, yeah, yeah. and then if if there's discussions that are going on where you can try and influence something at a higher level than that, then that's great, yeah. you know. Um, so well, what was there's your plan? to do with just like building stuff,
1: yeah, <laughs> building yeah, yeah. stuff that's not garbage. <laughs> so I mean, what's your process? Because I'm just not used to making content-based games. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's something you should very, try it
0: sometime. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think I'd be really bad at it. Well, i like, even like, even like in Civ, like occasionally I've thought like, well, I'll make a scenario, and I think I actually be like really bad at making like a fixed <laughs> scenario. I don't know. It's just like, uh, it's just not the way I. Yeah, uh, yeah, make yeah. no.
0: I mean, fair enough. I mean, and I, I'm not gonna pretend like I think I would do a great job at like being a strategy game systems designer. So, like. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. and yeah. So my, I mean, my my question, I guess, is like, how do you make it good, right? Like, yeah. especially if like. Because well, like with Civ, even if like the rules haven't changed all that much, each time you play, it's a little bit different, right? Like yeah. You know, pretty soon, I mean, besides the fact that you you placed everything in the level, right. right? So you know everything that's there. Like, how do you determine that it's good? Like, you can't really view it the way a player right. can, right? So. I mean,
0: and that's the thing. Most of it is like, or the most valuable aspect of it is playtesting. You know, mm-hmm. and when you're at a studio like 2K, it's it's primarily internal. But there's mm-hmm. so many people that don't play your level hardly ever. And, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on what point in production you're in, probably have just never actually played it at all because they're a producer or an animator or Mm a particle artist or whatever. And it's sort of like, okay, there's a bunch of people here that if I just handed them the controller right now, Mm -hmm. they would be a fresh set of eyes. So, like...
1: Would you do that, like, consciously, like, on a certain schedule or, like...
0: Um, it was... So, I would do... The, the the first line of defense would always be, like, level review meetings where it'd be, like, you and other designers and maybe some of the leads or whatever, like the animation lead or the environment art lead or whatever. And, you know, they would sit in and somebody would play it and people would be like, what about that? You know, this thing, that's a problem. That seems like a thing, you know, whatever. And and take down notes and go back to fix it. So, like, that that kind of, like, review meeting thing would be your standard source of, like, Notes, you know, like change this. This doesn't seem like it's working. Whatever, but like,
1: and would you be doing that for other people's levels? Sort of
0: it depends. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it would be like other level designers sit in. Sometimes it would be just leads. It really depended. Yeah, yeah. But um it's still a, it's very different from just having someone play it at their desk and just yeah. watching how they play it. Because when you're in a review meeting, there's a lot of like, play for thirty seconds, you know, ten seconds, whatever. Stop. Be like, oh, what's going on with that thing? Okay, cool. And you missed something and then you're like, Oh no, actually you have to go over there. You know, it's like, it, it's more of like content review than like a holistic, like how does someone encounter this? So anyway, um, so it's very different to say like, Hey, like I remember there were a number of times that Alyssa Finley, our executive producer, I would, she would, she would be there late <clears throat> and we'd be working and she would be in her office and I would go over and just be like, can you just like, would you mind, you know, do you have time to, to play the level I'm working on? Um, and she'd play it, and I would get to see, like, oh, okay, like, she didn't notice that. Or, like, she just got totally wasted by this enemy that came out of nowhere, and that's on me, or, like, that kind of stuff. Um, or, yeah, going to XYZ person on the team and just being like, hey, if you have 20 minutes, if you have half an hour or whatever, if you could play this part of this thing. Um, and we also did some team play tests where it would be like, okay, everybody take Friday and, like, play through all the game that's there or whatever, and you'd get notes from that. Um, but there's also, you know, there's also when you get far enough into development that like it's not gray box anymore, they would do like like you know focus testing, but not like not like uh, do you like the big daddy better if he's blue than if he's green, you know kind of thing, but like just sort of pay some guy. 20 bucks and give him free pizza and just have him play through however many levels and like videotape just, it just and sit happens. on like the other side yep. of the one way glass and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, cause I mean all of those things are just speaking to what you said, which is just like when you built it and when you placed everything and when you know what's going to happen, you're a perfectly good judge of like whether the scripted event that you're setting up looks good or not. But you absolutely have to have other people encounter your stuff for the first time to know whether they're going to look at the right thing or know where to go or... And, you know, that's a lot of what we did on Gone Home, um, either with people that we know or with, like, sending builds to other developers and getting their feedback. We've done a few rounds of it with Tacoma, and, like, those are always the points where immediately people are just like, here's the thing that either you can't see because you're the one making it or here's that thing that you've had in the back of your head that you haven't been able to conceptualize, Mm -hmm. but I'll point it out immediately and you'll be like that. Yes, that was the thing that was bothering me, you know? Um, so yeah, you, you have to, you have to rely on other people to tell you how, what you're making is going to be perceived, you know? Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, it was it was a good process, you know. Like it was, I think that that some of the things that are just empirically,
1: like what did you what did you learn? Like did you did you start to develop like you know a certain philosophy of game design? Like when you're going through this, or I
0: think I think so. Um, I I think that I think that we had a very strong design team on Bioshock Two, and I think some of that is borne out by. Um, what people who worked on the team have gone on to do afterwards. I mean, between Fulbright stuff, but also like mm-hmm. David Pittman, who was a programmer on, mm-hmm. uh, on the game. He, he made Eldritch and Neonstruct. you know, Kent Hudson, who was a designer on the game. He made the novelist and now he's mm-hmm. working on a new game like Jordan and, uh, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Like there, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, there are people like, I know some of, uh, a number of 2k folks ended up working on like the dishonored series and other stuff. Mm-hmm. So like, um, I was very fortunate to work with a lot of people who are really talented and knew their stuff and whether they were very experienced or, or, uh, this was, you know, earlier in their career, there was just, I, you know, when you're hiring, when, when it's early 2008 and you're hiring people to make a sequel to Bioshock, I think you, get access to a lot of really good people <laughs> that are very passionate or in it for like Bioshock. Yeah. I want to make that. And like, I'm all, I'm capable of doing so. Um, but you know, I, I definitely learned a lot of, I learned a lot, um, from the, the design group overall, but especially from Zach McClendon, who was the lead designer on the game. And he's now the lead designer on Psychonauts 2 at Double Fine, mm-hmm. um, which is in, you know, early development. Um, but uh he had worked at Crystal Dynamics and um and he he had kind of a, a really strong history of like shipping games as a lead and having internalized a lot of like best practices of just like he's he's very focused on like legibility and readability and player feedback and sort of like strong fundamentals, you know, and and codified that stuff in a way that as an inexperienced designer, I hadn't conceptualized on my own, you know, but it's sort of like you play a lot of games and you're like, okay, I I can make my way through them. But when somebody really knows like how to codify like a, um, you know, a player power curve or a a verb introduction schedule or, you know, like uh, how to really break down like here's why the structure and flow of the layout of this level works and tells the player how they should navigate through it um versus just like this level's cool i didn't like that level you know like all all of that perspective and and that outlook on like you know he was he was very involved in system design as well but you know just sort of like this upgrade is good because when you get it you can really tell the difference that it made you know like and it's both, you know, AV feedback, but also when you do something is functionally different and it matters. You know, just like having stuff that 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 feels meaningful. You know, he, actually, so um, he this year at GDC is one of the instructors at uh, at the um, game design workshop. Mm-hmm. And you've have you you've been, been involved was, with the workshop, yeah. right? Yeah. So I was I I was an attendee of the workshop um, at the GDC before I started my very first design job. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, like. It's that kind of, like, MDA framework, Mm -hmm. like, chunky, fundamental, like, read, like, this is, like, a structural basis for how to understand how to, like, design stuff that that people can actually, like, interface with. Um, So, anyway, um, I, I think that if you look at, yeah, for instance, Popper's Drop is kind of a weird... It's a weird level, and it, it's a level by somebody who doesn't have, like, who hasn't established a lot of, like, ground rules for how to design something like that. Just the flow of it is, like, weird, and we had to use, like, a lot of, like, quasi arbitrary gating to, like, make a flow to it because mm-hmm. the layout didn't really um, speak to that. And then, so I was the lead designer on the story DLC for Bioshock 2 Minerva's Den, and I was also the level designer for the first level in that game. So I just built it myself. And that level is like an extremely like canonical hub and spoke structure where it's like you come in from the South and you end up at a central hub and there's three branches that go off of it. And you go into one to get in the other and then go into the other to get to the end and you come back to the hub and then you're finished. And
1: so you did something pretty traditional.
0: Yeah. And well, I mean, traditional is one way of looking at it, but I think another way is just like, based on a set of rules that lead to a very clear and self-describing structure to the player. You know, in a way that's like, okay, this isn't like some weird abstract thing you have to figure out. It's like the shape of the space is in the shape of the experience. You know what I mean? Um, And on the micro, I think as a player, as an end user... I don't think that that's readily apparent. I don't think you're like, oh, I see, it's three doors, I'm going to, you know. Um, and the thing is, if you take the map of the first level of Minerva's Den and basically overlay it on the map of the house in Gone Home, it's the same, it's basically the same map. Like, you get into the foyer, right, right, there's stairs up, that go, stairs go up, there's behind. a door to the left, there's a door to the right. Um, yeah. And so, like, you know, I think that really is kind of, like, the that's the demonstration of going from like, well, I'm a designer just, I guess I'll make a cool level to like, Oh, I understand like what the flow of this thing is. and I can codify that in the actual work. And then, you know, then you have to like fight yourself not to just be like, well, I'll just do the thing that I know works all the time. Um, but I think that's, that's kind of the flow. You know, you don't know what you're doing. Oh, you find something that works. Now you have to work to not just like rely on that forever, but it's, it's good to have to have gotten to go through that that process of working with a team of people who could actually like teach me how to be a better designer in a way that like i can be conscious of you know what i mean cuz i i think there's a lot of places you can work where it's like you learn how to be better with the tools or like you're better at making stuff at the end or whatever, but it doesn't have that aspect of it. It almost feels like an education. Right. You know, you don't come away being like, Oh yeah, I, I can well, You
1: grow a lot when you, when you have to do something twice from beginning to end. Sure. Right, like yeah. You did the first. You did the level for the first one, yeah. And then you did the level for the second one. And everything you learned from the first one, you're able to apply. Like, yeah. they weren't overlapping, right? You could just like from the very beginning, you're like, okay, I want to do this a different way. Now, yeah, right.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that some places, you know, some processes you can go through, you could come out the other end a better designer or better at certain things, but you might not. You might not know. You might not feel like you would know how to teach someone else. Mm-hmm those rules or those lessons you know um and so i feel like i was i was lucky to work somewhere where i was like oh yeah i can actually kind of like conceptualize how i work differently now and i could relay that to someone you know and yeah. in the form of something like a gdc talk which obviously you know like which i've, I've done uh one or two of um but it, it was a really really valuable um project to have been on yeah um much higher profile than something like the you know, the expansion pack, but still like there's something that's also really good about, especially with Minerva's Den, it was like we were making an expansion pack for a sequel to a shipped game. Yeah. Like having very stable, very robust tools to just like make content with is really valuable. So mm-hmm. like as far as like having your first level design job on like a high profile big project, it was nice that it was like, okay, here's Bioshock's Perforce Depot yep. make more of this you know what I mean <laughs> as far as a place to start from right.
1: Every, everything is working you know um,
0: mostly yeah,
1: as, as good as, you, as it does right in the, in the yeah yeah um, yeah like yeah let's, let's talk about Minerva, Minerva's done a little bit sure like, so